Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Good morning, everybody. We are in the book of Revelation. Uh, We are jumping into Revelation chapter 7 today, so I invite you to open your copy of the scriptures and join us there. Um, We we began this journey back in Daniel, uh, back in the early part, because Daniel and Revelation tied together quite significantly throughout throughout the study. But we began studying then the seven churches over the last portion of the summer, for for most of the summer, really. And then we've jumped into the book of Revelation beginning in chapters four and following. And that's where we're headed as we head into uh, this fall season. And it's a hard book. Let, Let me just say that. It's a hard book. And so it's good to take a deep breath. And to jump in, <laughs> um, I love that pa- that um, Mark prayed. The Holy Spirit is our teacher, because there's some things that are really challenging to understand, and some things that that we have to hold in tension. And there's even some things on which good people disagree, and that is okay. But as best as we can, we want to understand the Word of God so that it may be. God's revelation to us for our living, for our life, for um, all that we need for life and godliness, the scripture says, is found in here. And I love the reminder in Revelation chapter 1 where it says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep the things which are written in it for the time is near. We, We have a blessing that is attached to this as we read and as we study and as we seek to hear and to understand and we seek to walk out because the Lord is going to return one day. Amen? It's going to be an amazing event. And as you read these pages, and we're in a kind of a challenging section of Revelation right now, but even as you read this, our confidence in God should grow as we study his word even as we ask questions about his word. So grateful that you're here. If this is your first time joining us and you're like, whoa, I'm jumping right into the deep end. Yes, go, go ahead and jump back on our podcast, on our live stream. We've got some um, archive stuff there if you want to find out where we've been in all of the chapters coming up to this. Uh, but super grateful for God's word to be able to jump into together today. Um, <clears throat> would you stand with me, please, for the reading of the scriptures? Revelation chapter 7, we like to stand in honor of the God who gave these words to us. And this is a vision that he's given to John for John to declare to those to come after him. And this is a prophecy. And it says this in chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. He cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the slaves or the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard a number of those having been sealed, 144,000 from every tribe of the sons of Israel, from the tribe of Judah, 
12,000 having been sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 having been sealed. After these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and they cry out with a loud voice saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb and all the angels were standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying Amen. The blessing and the glory and the wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, these clothed in the white robes, who are they and from where have they come? And I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his sanctuary. And he sits, he who sits on the throne will dwell over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne, he will shepherd them and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Father, these are your words. Help us to learn what they mean, that we may walk faithfully with you by the power of your spirit today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Sometimes you get this idea when you read the book of Revelation. I'll be honest, a couple weeks ago, I was like, it's all chronological, picking up in chapter four and following. And then I started reading it more in depth. And I went, it's not all chronological because you get this kind of like um, flashback scene or flash forward scene that happens here. Now, all of this is prophecy. In fact, John says it that way in the first chapter, in the first three verses, he says, this is a prophecy. And he gives us an outline for what the book says. And he says, write the things which you have seen, the things which are. And I think he's referring there to Revelation 2 and 3 because that's what is. He's writing letters to these seven churches. But then he says, write the things which will be, the things which are yet to come, the things which are prophetically in the future. And we pick up there in chapter 4 and going all the way to the end. But we get kind of this idea of a flashback scene. You, you may have seen a, a show or a movie sometime where you're watching something happen and all of a sudden there's like a, a graphic that goes in there and all of a sudden you're back and the kid is like eight years old where they're actually like 45 in real life but they're flashing back to something. Or they might be flashing forward to something as the beginning of an episode. What we have here in Revelation chapter 7 is we have something that's kind of like an intermission. It's kind of like a pause on what God began in chapter 6. 
in chapter 6, he's prophetically saying there is going to be a series of judgments that come. And in chapter 6, we see that there's six seals, and the seventh seal has yet to open. We'll find out in future weeks that once the seventh seal opens, um, the, the, the seventh seal opens, and it gives way to the trumpet judgments, which are different than the seal judgments. You come to the end of the trumpet judgments, the seventh trumpet, it sounds, and then you come into the vile judgments, or the, um, or the bowl judgments, vials, V-I-A-L. There, not V-I-L-E. English is a great language, isn't it? Um, so you have this series of three sets of sevens with regard to judgments. So we come to the end of the sixth seal, and, and this question is posed <clears throat> at the end of chapter six. It says, and, and there's kings of the earth and great commanders and great men, rich and strong, slave and free. They're hiding themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains, verse 15. They said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. And then in verse 17, it says, for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? And we go straight from that question that is asked there to a picture of two groups of people who are able to stand. The first one I want to introduce to you, it's called the 144,000. How many of you have ever heard the phrase 144,000? Yeah, it's all over the place, both in Christian circles and in non-Christian circles. It's a number that's oft debated in theology. In fact, there's no, there's no lack of ink spilled writing about who the 144,000 are. Let's read this, though, <clears throat> where we just read it, but, but let's kind of talk through it. Because what the 144,000 are is they are people who are sealed, all right? They're, they're people who have the seal of God on their foreheads. And notice what it says here in, um, in verse 3. Th there's an angel who's, who's saying something, and he's saying, Don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the slaves of our God on their foreheads. So I think what's going on here is at the beginning, before, not the beginning, beginning, not like Genesis, but at the beginning of all of these judgments that come, before the seal judgments come, there's something that happens in the heavens. And it's this, hang on a second, there's 144,000 people whom we need to seal because when we read last week and we opened Revelation chapter six, we noticed that there's a, an anti-Messiah, a false Messiah that comes out. Then we notice that there's all this like war and famine and pieces removed from the earth. Like it gets really bad up to the point where in verse eight, death comes over a quarter of the earth. Think about all the things that are happening in those days. But God says, there's going to be a seal of 144,000 people who are going to be my slaves or my servants. You could translate that word. And they're going to have this mark on their foreheads. We find these people... Um, Mentioned again in Revelation chapter 14, just to kind of help us understand that a little bit. <clears throat> in Revelation 14, it refers to the lamb and the 144,000 standing on Mount Zion. I think that's probably a reference to at the end of when the, when the Messiah comes, he's standing there with 144,000 people on Mount Zion. Because that's typically a phrase used to describe Jerusalem. And he has 144,000 having his name in the name of his father written on their foreheads. And you get this new song that is sung. And it says in verse 4, these have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. So these are people who are all about the worship of Yahweh. They're people whose hearts and whose minds are set upon their Lord. 
And they're people who are going to serve. And they served during a very, very challenging time. 144,000 servants. But notice what else Revelation 7 says about these servants. It says in verse 4 that he hears the number of those having been sealed, 144,000 from every tribe of the sons of Israel. There's a lot of ink spilled on who these are. My contention, my belief based upon the scripture here, the the clearest, plainest way to understand this is that these are 144,000 Jewish servants of God because the text says they're from the sons of Israel. And because he wants us to not miss that and get that point, he then goes on to list 12 different tribes from which 12,000 in each tribe come from of these representatives of people who serve God in a very special way during the tribulation period. So there are 144,000, I believe, Jewish servants of Yahweh on earth who, who are sealed before the seal judgments, before a quarter of the earth dies. In chapter 8, we're going to find that a third of the remaining people on the earth also die, and, and more people in the midst there too. And then finally, when we come to the, to the bowl judgments, God's wrath is poured out, and there's just utter destruction. But God has sealed people for him to serve him during this time in a way that preserves them, in a way that keeps them, in a way that marks them during this season. In fact, the word here for sealed is the word sfragizo. Can you say sfragizo? Isn't that just a fun word to say? Oh, I love it. Sfragizo means to mark with a seal as a means of identification. You could translate it mark or seal. And it has um, the idea in the Greek of having a mark that denotes ownership and also carries with it the protection of the owner. So God is essentially saying, I am your owner. You are my servants. I am marking you, and I'm marking you for this very, very challenging time. Because the question in chapter 6 is, who can stand? Who can stand when all this mayhem is going on all over the world? And the first answer is, there's 144,000 whom God sovereignly seals within the Jewish people to mark them for special service. Now, now why would God mark 12,000 times, you know, 12 tribes of people from the people of Judah and Simeon and Reuben and Gad and and the the Jewish people? Why would he mark them during this time? Um, I, I think one of the reasons is because the Jewish people play a very important role within the tribulation period. Here's what I mean. When when the tribulation period is described in Scripture, there's a Jewish element, a Jewish involvement uh, that's going on here. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 30, this time of great tribulation is called the time of Jacob's trouble. Right? It, it, it's prophesied even back in the Hebrew Bible that this is going to be a time of Jacob's trouble. Um, when we studied Daniel chapter 9, we, we read, we studied more of the prayer during, during our morning service. But during Sunday school, we, we looked a little bit more at Daniel chapter 9, where there's what's called the 70 weeks prophecy. If you'd like to, go ahead and just hold your finger in, Daniel, or in Revelation 7. Turn to Daniel chapter 9. <clears throat> 
In Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, there are 70 weeks, and these are weeks of years that have been determined for your people. This is a prophecy that God is giving to Daniel. And he says, 70 weeks have been determined for your people or decreed for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the holy of holies. Um, When Jesus comes, what he does is he actually brings atonement for iniquity. And in a sense, he brings in righteousness. You know, hail the son of righteousness is one of the phrases that we sing at Christmas time. But when we look at this and we say, man, to make an end to sin, to finish a transgression, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, we look at this and we go, in these 70 weeks, those things have not all been completed. Because we look outside and we say, yeah, everlasting righteousness does not reign in our land, nor does it reign in any other land around the world. There, there is not an end of sin final yet at this point. But um, God gives Daniel this prophecy. He says, so you are to know in verse 25 and have insight that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the prince, there'll be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Okay, so 69 weeks will be restored and rebuilt with plaza and moat in, even in times of distress. And he's marking here a series of 69 weeks that are marked by the, um, the rebuilding of a plaza and moat, which happens at the time of Nehemiah. But then it says, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are decreed. And so there's something that happens here after the 62 weeks. You have the seven weeks, the 62 weeks. What happens after the 62 weeks is the Messiah is cut off. Jesus gives his life as a ransom, as a payment for sin. He is cut off. But then there's more. The end will come with a flood. And here I don't think it's going, um, I think it's going in order of the events that are going to happen. But whereas the first couple of verses mark a certain timing, here in the last couple of verses, um, we go away from a, a, a exact timing to a pause period or to a period of at some point in time, verse 27, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, one week being seven years. And this time is prophesied of the tribulation period. In the middle of the one week, he will make a sacrifice and grain offering cease. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is pour out, poured out on the one who makes desolate. One of the things that I want you to note is um, this whole 70 week prophecy, verse 24 says, they've been decreed for your people. When this 70 weeks is talked about in the Hebrew Bible, and he says, your people, he's writing to a Jewish prophet living in Babylon. He's writing to a Jewish prophet who's writing down something, and he's going, this is what God is going to do. This has to do with our people. And so when we turn the page and we come to Revelation chapter 7, we go, 144,000, man, they look like they're really Jewish because they're from the sons of Israel. And then we've got all these tribes listed. Why would they be Jewish and what would God be doing? I think they're Jewish because there's a forecoming time of Jacob's trouble, a time that has been decreed for the people of Israel. And it's not that the people of the Gentiles, I use that term in the most um, general sense, um, aren't there. It's not to say that there are not um, non-Jewish people there, but that there's people that God is going to work with to do a work in the people of 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to bring them to himself. In fact, Romans chapters 9 through 11 talk about how the, a hardening has come upon the Jewish people. But Paul says there's a hardening that has come upon the Jewish people, but they've, stum- they've not stumbled so as to have fallen. And he foretells in chapter 11 that there's going to be a time when Israel as a nation will come in and all Israel will be saved. That's a very hard verse to translate. It's a very hard verse to work with, but I think what it points forward to is God is not done with his people Israel, and he will keep the covenants and the promises that he has made to them, and part of those are met in these last days, and part of those are going to be met through 144,000 Jewish evangelists who go out to tell the world during a very, very challenging time on earth, you have a king, and his name is Jesus, and you can find healing and hope in him, and even though the wrath of God is being poured out on the earth, it is not too late to come to faith in the Messiah. There's a whole lot more we could say there. Maybe we'll talk about that in Sunday school. But this 144,000, I think is 144,000 Jewish people who become um, witnesses for God on earth. And, And There's others who think differently, and there's even um, groups outside of Orthodox Christianity who claim this 144,000 as being one thing or another. For example, the Jehovah's Witnesses claim that 144,000 is a limit to the number of people who will reign with Christ in heaven and spend eternity with him. Um, Much is debated about this. I I think it's the easiest way to understand is to say, man, they look really Jewish because they're from the sons of Israel and God is going to do something. The, the other challenge that we have with this listing of tribes is if you've read the listing of tribes in, in the scriptures, it changes a lot. And there's, there's some reasons for that. Um, one of the reasons that the listing of the 12 tribes of Israel changes, especially when they're giving out land, is because <clears throat> Joseph, for example, on his father's deathbed, um, he, his blessing is passed on to his sons Ephraim and Manasseh. Here we have Manasseh noted, but we don't have Ephraim, but we do have Joseph. So we're going, oh, why is that there? Um, Another challenge that we have is the tribe of Dan is not in this list at all. Why? We can talk about that in Sunday school. It'd be great. There's your hook. Um, But scholars think about these things. Um, The tribe of Levi is noted here. Many times when we find the tribes listed in the Bible, Levi is not noted. And one of the reasons is because they're priests and they don't have an inherited portion of land, which is one of the reasons that many of these tribes are given out. All these things put together still seem to indicate there's a Jewish thing that is going on here. And there's 144,000 Jewish people who have been sealed by God on their foreheads, who have been marked by Yahweh for protection during a time in which protection is greatly needed from disease, from war, from famine, because they have a mission and a job to do. And that job is to bring the message of the Messiah to the world at this time. So you have this question asked in the end of chapter 6. For the great day of the wrath has come, who is able to stand? Well, there's a group who can stand because they're sealed by God for this time. They can stand. They can stand. And in fact, in Revelation 14, we see them standing right before the throne of the Messiah. But there's another group who can also stand. 
This other group is described as a, a great multitude, which no one could count. So just think, just tons and tons and tons and tons of people. No one can count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So here's a group of people then who are standing before God. And the question is asked in the text here, who are these people? All right? He has this conversation with one of the elders gathered around the throne. And the elder says to him, <clears throat> these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and they've made them white in the blood of the lamb. So, so who are these people? These people are people who came out of the great tribulation. And you have this picture of they're white, but they're white because they're red. And I don't know if you've ever spilled grape juice on your like white shirt, or you've um, spilled fruit punch on a nice white carpet. Um, if you ever do that, it can be really challenging to get out. You notice its difference. Here, these are people who have been made white, been made pure, been, been made clean because of something dark red that happened to them. They, they, they washed their robes. They took their identity no longer from who they were, separated and lost in their transgressions and sins, but they go to the Messiah who says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Let me give you rest. Take my teaching upon you. Learn from me. They've become disciples of the Lord Jesus. I believe during the tribulation period, because they come out of the great tribulation. But here in the, fo or here in the photo, here in the picture that, that John is given, they're standing before the lamb. And so I'm going, you know, I'm thinking this week, so when is this? And when we see white robes here, we, we saw white robes last week. Um, in verse 11 of chapter 6, it, it says that there's a white robe given to each of them. And we find out that these are people who had, um, who I believe who had lost their life, who had been slain because of the word of God, verse 9 says, and because of the witness that they maintained. And they cry out to the Lord, how long, O master, holy and true, will you not judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So you get this picture <clears throat> that these are people who I think are martyrs of the great tribulation. And they've come to faith in the Messiah, Jesus, and they're from every tribe and nation and language and people. So you have 144,000 who God brings to salvation at some point in time, I think probably early in the tribulation, and then they go out and they faithfully proclaim the witness of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and how you can find life and healing in his name. And there's a great multitude of people, including, I think, Jewish people, including Gentile people, uh, including people who speak um, People who speak Spanish and people who speak Portuguese and people who speak Afrikaans and people who speak every language, Arabic and all these kind of things. They're gathered around the throne and you get this multicultural view of, wow, God is doing a saving work even during the most difficult time on human existence on earth. And we say, thank you, Lord. When we get a picture of even the judgments of God, here we also get a picture of the grace and the mercy of God. These are people who have come into relationship, but notice that they've, they're ones who have come out of the great tribulation. I was listening to a, a great pastor this week um, who, who has the opinion, as, as many do, that we're all in the tribulation, that, that 
the believers of God experience tribulation all the time. And it's true, we do experience tribulation. In fact, the word tribulation is the word thlipsis in Greek, and it's used many times. It's even used many times in Revelation 2 and 3 to describe how those early churches um, in Asia Minor experienced tribulation. But notice what it says here. These are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. It seems through this verse, and you can cross-reference it to Matthew 24, um, and there's one other one too um, that I don't see in my notes right now, but, but these are ones who, who experience a tribulation unlike any other tribulation ever seen on earth. They've, got, they've gone through the great tribulation. They've come out of the great tribulation not, and, and likely lost their lives somewhere in that time. They've become martyrs. And this is not new to the church. Persecution was a part of the early church from its infancy. And even today, there are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ who experience tribulation. But there's coming a time when there's going to be great tribulation such as the world has never seen. And the question comes back to chapter 6, verse 17, who can stand? And it's those who've been sealed by God and those who've come to faith in the Messiah, Jesus, who've said, you know what? The world has a lot that it wants to offer me. It wants to offer me power. It wants to offer me wisdom. It wants to offer me finances. It wants to offer me status. But there's something so much better. Paul puts it this way. He says, Christ is a hall in hall. He says, I count everything as loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, and being found in him. And these are people who have turned away from their sin and they've embraced their savior who invites them into relationship. And we get a sense of what their life was like on earth. This is chapter seven of Revelation verse uh, 15. For this reason, they're before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in sanctuary. The one who sits on the throne <clears throat> says he will dwell over them or he will shelter them or he will live and he will settle with them. There's this picture of the presence of God right there with them. It says they will hunger no longer, which means they must have hungered on earth. In fact, as we looked at one of the judgments that comes in Revelation chapter 6 last week, um, we, we found that um, a, a inflation and famine is definitely part of those first set of seals. And that probably only increases as it goes through the Great Tribulation period. They hunger no longer. They thirst no more. Nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb is at the center of the throne and he will shepherd them and he will guide them to springs of the water of life. What an amazing promise for people who experience great trial in this world to be reminded, to be told, even as they read the words of God, that uh, God will meet us on this. He, he will meet us in this other side. He will be with us through this. There is coming a time where we will no longer hunger or thirst or or experience heat but there's a time coming when the lamb who's at the center of the throne he will shepherd us he will shepherd us and he will guide us to springs of the water of life whenever um well one of the pictures that's given throughout the scriptures both the hebrew bible and the new testament 
One of the pictures that's given is, come to me, Jesus says, and experience real water that satisfies. I don't know if you've ever um, drank water that was hot and a little like, ooh, should I be drinking this? Maybe you're camping, you're like, ooh, I'm really thirsty, but I didn't put my uh, chlorine tablet in here. Should I really do this? Um, There's these pictures throughout the Bible where God invites his people to come and experience that which truly satisfies. Jesus puts it this way in John chapter 7. He says, on the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. The reason they have streams of living water is because they've come to the one who is the giver of life. The one who meets their needs in perfect abundance. The one who meets them in their struggle and gives them grace for the day. In fact, I I love the image here. It says the lamb at the center of the throne will shepherd them. Kind of evokes images back to the great psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You anoint my head in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall pursue me all the days of my life where I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This promise to have a shepherd is to have one who cares, to have one who meets our needs, to have one who knows exactly what we need. And he meets us in that today, and he meets the tribulation saints, those who have come out of the great tribulation, who have become martyrs for the cause of Christ. He meets them in perfect abundance. Doesn't it? This is actually a photo. It kind of looks like it's digitized a little bit with the individual. But this is a photo taken in the mid-1950s, colored a little bit, where there's a good shepherd who leads his sheep. We talked about sheep some time back, and the amazing thing about sheep is sheep need a shepherd. You have to have a shepherd if you're a sheep. In fact, sheep are pretty dumb. But dumb is not bad because they just need, I guess they're not dumb, they just need a shepherd. <laughs> um, God meets each one of us with his grace. He meets each one of us on the journey that we call life. He meets each one of us here, whether we are experiencing struggle, whether we're experiencing anxiety, whether we're experiencing health problems, whether we're experiencing a crisis of faith. And he says, let me be your shepherd. Let me walk you and guide you through this season. Uh, It's comforting to me to know that in that psalm, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. What a great promise. A great promise of a shepherd who even when we face challenges in this life, he is with us. Mark prayed for one of our our missionary partners um, on the other side of the world, literally. 
And this brother has been, um, he's had to flee for his life before from the place in which he served. Go to another place because there was a head on his, or there was a bounty on his head for simply being a Christian and proclaiming Christ in, in appropriate ways, but for proclaiming Christ in a very godless, challenging culture. This is part and parcel for what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And while we don't experience the fullness of that here in the time in which we talk about, the invitation that Jesus gives us is, follow me, be my disciple, no matter what you face, I am with you. Even though you go through this really, really, really deep loss, and deep crisis. Never fear, I am with you. And and I love that the picture that we get of the second group that is able to stand, the multitude from every nation and tribe and tongue, they're standing before the thrones, and what are they doing? They're worshiping. Their whole life has been about coming to the Messiah and trusting him and his goodness. And they come before the throne, and before the throne, um, they just start singing. They start proclaiming how good and how great and how awesome God is. I just want you to think about the original church hearing this. The original church is a church described in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation as people who are facing great persecution. People who, um, likely under the hands of the ruler Domitian, um, knew what it was like to suffer. And I love the way one commentator says it. He says, suffering in this life, be it physical, emotional, or spiritual, will one day yield to unfathomable bliss. My friends, the scripture says it this way, beloved, be encouraged. Be encouraged. God is with you in your struggle. And he promises hope for a day to come in which this struggle is met with his physical presence. But he has not left us as orphans. He's with us by the working of his spirit. By the gentle reminder that God is here. Um, the, The word spirit in scripture, it's the word in Greek, it's the word pneuma or pneuma. Uh, it means wind or breath. In, in Hebrew, it's the word ruach. I love saying that word, ruach. And it's, I mean, it means spirit or wind or breath. <clears throat> when we were in Israel several years ago, um, it was hot. It was like 95 degrees in August. And every now and then you'd catch a glimpse of the, or not a glimpse, you'd, you'd catch a, 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 a sense of the wind. And our, our trip leader would remind us, whenever you feel the wind, remember this truth, God is there. And it's not that he's not there when the wind isn't blowing, but sometimes we have to be reminded, wait, oh, it's really hot. It's really hard. Oh, there's a, there's, there's a, there's a, a wind that is blowing, cooling us down. Ah, oh, God is here. Christian, God is with you in the journey you face today. And I don't know what that journey is, but he meets you with himself, which is more than enough. The question comes in chapter 6, verse 17, who can stand, which means there's going to be people who cannot stand. But here's the great message of the gospel. We sang it last week. 
Here in the power of Christ, I stand in the song in Christ alone, where my hope is found for he is my light and my strength and my song. If you're not a follower of Jesus today, your invitation is come to the one who has given his life for you. Believe that Jesus died and rose again. Believe God's promise that you can find life in his name. That he gives it free of charge. In fact, that's the amazing thing about the gospel is he gives it free of charge. We cannot earn it. We cannot deserve it. But we must receive it. God's message for you today is come to the one who can meet your every need and the one who wants you to find life in him. And when you do, you can stand. You can stand. The, the, the end of Revelation is just, actually all of Revelation gives these amazing pictures of worship. I love this one in here. This is the one of the multitude singing. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And they're, they're, they're gathering around the throne. They fall on their faces. They worship God. And they say, amen. Let it be so. That is true. The blessing and the glory and the wisdom and the thanksgiving, the honor and the power and the strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. We can take hope today that God is with us. We can also take encouragement and direction today that no matter what we face, worship is our first response because God is good. Our Father and our King, I thank you that you meet us today, even in a challenging portion of Scripture, even in a, a world that is darkened by sin. Thank you, God, for revealing the light of your truth and the light of your Son to us. Lord, I pray that you would grant us wisdom this week. We thank you, God, that in your spirit we have wisdom this week. For all the things before us, God, I pray that you would encourage the hearts of people struggling through financial struggles, struggling through health struggles, struggling through a brokenness of, <clears throat> of um, maybe loved ones that they, that they have who are far from you. God, help us to lean into you, to depend upon you for all that we need. Father, I pray for your grace to walk after you. We yield our life to you this week, God, both individually and corporately as a church, that we may be about the things that you care about most. Thank you for Jesus, who gives us life both now and forever. And we worship you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.